Good evening, good day, and welcome to the 150th episode of the Ask Abhijit Show. Uh, it's incredible. We have reached episode 150. It's all thanks to you all. Without your viewership, without your support, we would never have been here. I would have stopped after two, three episodes if nobody was watching. So this is all thanks to you. I am very grateful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And obviously, we will keep going. Yeah. Um, so yeah, let's uh, before we do anything else, let's see who all is there on the live chat. I can see lots of people. I can see Ketan Vankhede, Manan Chopra, Aki, Saurabh Badoria, Nishad, Gaurav, Alpha, Harsh Dubey, Just a Guy, Devan, Devanand, Suhani, Yuvraj, Tanmay Deshpande, Un, Unhuman, Un, yeah, Unhuman, <laughs> Vikas, Hirohito. Uh, Akshat, the rock star Pratham, Som, Soman, Rahul, Akash Kumar Singh, Melvin, Mahinder, Mortal Razor, Fatty Just Eight, Shivaji, Itape, Rohit, Lambodhar, Obama, <laughs> Vaibhav Gupta, Jay Guman, Arnav, Pushkar, the Dragon Emperor, Utkarsh Gupta, Unknown, Akshit Pandey, Manohar, Bhavyadeep, Aryan, Teja, Varun, Anantakrishnan V, Harbi on Wheels, Shubayu, Zamiet, Anshul, Pamal Nandi, Abhirup Mishra, Kingstone, Crystal, Garvit, Abhishek, Mr. Bonfire, Lone Rider, Overlord, Harsh Dubey, Ritwik, Alpha, Aditi, Akshit, Priya, Abhirup, Harsh Dubey, and uh, lots of other people. Uh, Trupti, Sambar Development Fund, Lone Rider, Hello Tom, Uncle Biden, <laughs> Dev Patel, Nilay, Kunal, Giuseppe Di Fraia, and uh, lots of other people. Good evening, good day to all of you, wherever you are. Welcome to the live stream. So let us now, with that said, get into the questions. What shall we What shall we take first? <laughs> okay, let's take the obvious question first. Lots of people have asked me this question. And it is a question about my about our friend, Mr. Veer Das. Uh, Jain says, I want to ask only one thing. Ranveer show with, with Veer Das and your take on that. An Indian says, your reply to Veer Das at TRS calling your brown coolie comment racist. Divya says, uh, did you watch Veer Das's response to what you said in Ranveer's show? It was hilarious, playing victim card and all that. Yes, I did happen to watch that. I haven't watched the entire podcast. I've seen the clip in which he supposedly responds to my criticism of him on the same podcast, Ranveer Alabadi's podcast, the TRS, the Ranveer show. So uh, a few months ago, I've, I've done, as you know, many podcasts with Ranveer. So a few months ago, he had asked me, Ranveer, on his podcast about my views, my opinion about what, about Veer Das's actions abroad, the, the things he said about India on, on foreign soil and all that. And I, I had essentially criticized him. Uh, I don't remember exactly what I said. I haven't watched that clip again. It's been too, so long. Uh, but apparently I called him a brown coolie. Yeah. And and uh, so Veer Das, uh, so Ranveer in this uh, clip that I saw a uh, couple of days ago, he asks Veer Das to respond to my criticism. And Veer Das says that uh, me calling him a brown coolie is is racist apparently. Yeah. So, <laughs> so me calling Veer Das a brown coolie is apparently racist. Before I even address that, it's perfectly fine for Veer Das to, to make all kinds of anti-India, anti-Hindu statements. It's fine for him to call all Indian men rapists. That's not offensive. But me calling him brown coolie is offensive. He gets upset. <laughs> what, sort of, what sort of logic is this? I mean, that's hypocrisy. 
now when it comes to him uh, saying that uh, me calling him a brown coolie is racist is it even possible to be racist against someone of your own ethnicity i mean veerdas is indian i am indian we are the same people we are the same ethnicity we have essentially the same heritage same past same ancestry how can i be racist to my own ethnicity is it even possible yeah and maybe he has uh, maybe he has taken issue to this word coolie yeah and maybe the term coolie is apparently racist in his mind so veerdas is attempting to construct a career in the united states he must be very uh, aware of us culture is he aware of something called the rap industry the rap rap uh, music industry in the us it is dominated by african american people yeah all these rap uh, stars yeah coolio and ll cool j I, i don't know there must be many more these days i'm not really keeping track of it now in the us rap industry and and virda says that me using the word coolie against him is like using the n word again for, for against a an african american person black person so he's equating coolie with the n word in the us rap industry if you listen to the rap music they use the n word all the time in the us it is perfectly acceptable for a black person to use the n word for it is used sometimes as a term of endearment among black people sometimes in other other ways as well yeah but it's perfectly acceptable for a black people to use the n n word it is completely unacceptable for a white person to use the n word because of the history because the white people invented this word this word and they have used it for for centuries in a de- derogatory way in a racist way against black people so for a white person to use the n word is completely unacceptable black people use it all the time that's how it is that's the social convention similarly among indians the same way if a white person were to use the word coolie for an indian or for a chinese person or a japanese person or an eastern asian person that would be racism but an indian person using that word coolie is obviously not racism you can't be racist against yourself so this is a rather ridiculous thing that veerdas has said he is trying to to portray himself as a victim here yeah and if the word coolie is apparently racist in his mind then what is this exactly the 1983 movie coolie starring one of bollywood's great superstars amitabh bachchan is this a racist movie or maybe it's an old movie from 1983 maybe times have changed yeah then what about this movie coolie number 1 with some bollywood people who i don't really know this is a very recent movie coolie number 1 is this also a racist movie virdas <laughs> what sort of logic do people come up with how is the term coolie racist when an indian person uses it yeah if a white person calls an indian racist or a chinese racist or a japanese person or anybody else racist uh, calls them coolie if a white person uses the word coolie that's racism an indian person using the word coolie is not racism now let's understand some people would say that uh, i use the term coolie out of anger or out of emotion well that's not the case yeah let's under, what is the, the meaning of the of the term coolie what's the definition of coolie in the historic sense a coolie is a person who carries heavy loads yes typically these are the porters you will see uh, at railway stations historically they, they they've been used uh, you know you had these porters who would uh, carry heavy weights on railway stations and they were called coolies yeah historically so a coolie is a person who uh, carries heavy loads 
that's what a coolie is now uh so i use the term coolie as in 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 the sense of a brown man veerdas carrying the white man's burden you may have heard of the poem white man's burden which was written by the very racist uh indian born uh british poet rudyard kipling the white man's burden and in this poem he depicts the he says that the white people are uh, the the responsibility is to civilize the non white people because non white people are backward primitive all that barbaric yeah and the white people are civilized so it is the white man's burden to civilize the non white people the brown people the black people and so on and so forth the asian eastern asian people the indians and all that so even today these racist uh tropes the, these racist attitudes still continue so today you will see in the west in the us in 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 the uk they their publications like the guardian the new york times the new york post the washington post and, and, and so on and so forth they have they carry these very strongly anti india articles but they always they usually employ indian origin people to write these things very racist very patronizing very derogatory articles about india and it's usually indian origin people who are made to write these articles so that they can keep their they can say that we didn't write it it's an indian origin person who wrote it our hands who wrote it our hands are clean so today it's perfectly acceptable to be racist against indians in in the west and especially against hindus yeah but not against certain other religions so racism is acceptable against indians and against hindus in a certain way and they typically employ indian origin people to write these derogatory articles that means that they are making the indians indian origin people the brown people to carry the white man's burden and they can say that our hands are clean so veer das is one of those brown coolies he is carrying the white man's burden yeah in the sense that he is going outside of india he is performing as, a, as apparently as a comic in the us and other places i i believe i don't know and he is you know ridiculing india he's uh, making fun of india he's criticizing india uh, so that is what i meant by veerdas being a brown coolie he is carrying the white man's burden on behalf of his of the people who he wishes to please yeah because he wants to create a career in the us and uh, obviously he's not a very funny guy he's rather unfunny but yeah he serves a purpose he serves the purpose of carrying the white man's burden so that's what i meant by calling veerdas a brown coolie and i stand by it it is not racist in any way whatsoever his contention that i was being racist against him is risible it is asinine it is laughable it's ridiculous yes now the thing is veerdas did he address my criticism in his uh, when ranveer invited him to do so i don't think he was able to address my criticism at all my criticism was why did you criticize india abroad why did you make fun of india abroad why did you ridicule india abroad you know it's it's uh, you will never see an american person coming to india and then ridiculing their country you will never see a chinese person coming to india and ridiculing their country you will never see a person from the uk coming to india and ridiculing the uk you will never see a french person coming to india and ridiculing france but you will see lots of indians these brown coolies who go to the west and attempt to ingratiate themselves over there by criticizing india ridiculing india making fun of india saying whatever these people want you to say yeah you know if you really care for india you know in friendship how it is 
when two people are real genuine friends and one person needs to be criticized that criticism is done in private it's never done in public when you have a small child and the child is is maybe you know needs some improvement you do the criticism of the child in private you don't do it in public yeah so we if virdas really cares about india and he thinks india needs to change and india needs to improve he could have said these things in india but no he chose to go half half the planet away the other side of the planet and and make fun of india in the us and my question was why did he do that he has not answered the question he has no answers you know virdas is very brave to speak about india abroad he is he has very bravely criticized india abroad made fun of india abroad he has very bravely ridiculed india abroad yeah yeah and and you think that's bravery there are no consequences for for ridiculing india there are no adverse consequences for ridiculing hinduism there are consequences for ridiculing certain other religions in some other countries but he won't do that you know so he comes to ranveer show ranveer gives gives him the opportunity to address this and he essentially plays the victim card yeah he's making fun of india over there and all that now i would like to invite veer das to uh well if he wants to he can do this you know he he speaks about two indias well i would like to uh tell veer das that there are two americas also there are two americas yeah there is one america that he wishes to live in the wonderful america that he wants to be a part of but there is a second america an america that conducted the genocide of at least 56 million native americans will virda speak about that it, there is a second america where which has a history of horrific racism against black people and non white people which still continues racial profiling gun killing killing by cop and so much more will virda speak about this there is a second america whose pharmaceutical industry exploits its own people it's all coming out these days will virdas speak about that second america there is a second america where homelessness is rampant where gun crime is rampant drug abuse child abuse sexual abuse is is rampant will virdas speak about that there is an america where california is is has descended into hell like status there there is no rule of law and order there is there are people doing drugs on the street there are people crapping on the streets there are people living on the streets the homelessness it's terrible and there is no rule of law will virda speak about that there is a city called chicago in the us where there are more crimes and rapes in a weekend than you have in india in in in, in delhi or mumbai over a month will virda speak about that will virda speak about the us the, the second america which killed 2 million iraqis uh, innocent men women children you know innocent people in their invasion of iraq you know directly and indirectly the shock and awe campaign which which blasted which flattened cities and killed everyone within will virda speak about that there is the second america which is still right now as you speak carrying out a war by proxy in yemen and killing civilians will virda speak about that there is a second america which tested two nuclear weapons on japanese civilians in 1945 and this second america has been occupying japan militarily against the will of its citizens since 1945 it's still happening today will virda speak about that so i am inviting virdas to to you know to be balanced 
you spoke about two indias why don't you go and speak about two americas and speak about that in the us let's see if you can do that he will not do it because he's a coward if he does that if virdas does that his precious little visa will be torn up his hopes of a green card and future citizenship will evaporate and he will be he will have to come back to india and he will have to entertain indians with his comedy his non existent comedy that's the problem so that is my if you if you want a response to to virdas this is that's my response to virdas if you dare speak about two americas go at brother brother go for it yeah i i i invite you to do that let's see if you can speak about two americas in the us or even in india come to india and speak about it let's see if you do that yeah so that's what i have to say about this and 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 i also saw that lots of people lots of people are criticizing ranveer uh please don't do that why what's the need what's what's the reason for that if ranveer had not invited virdas on his podcast you would not have seen virdas's response yes so please don't criticize ranveer and and whatever else yeah i really appreciate the fact that ranveer for inviting virdas and giving him the opportunity to give his non response to my criticism all right so yeah there there it goes uh, that's my response to this entire thing i i hope the matter rests here and let's see if virdas goes ahead and speaks about two americas the way he was so bravely happy to speak about two indias yeah let's see if he does it all right okay second question is uh, uh, yeah um, lots of people have asked me about this as well so harsh says the government is planning to open yale oxford etc foreign universities in india is it good or will it destroy our society more so foreign branch in branches in india of foreign universities and uh, geopolitical dubey says the government of india plans to invite foreign universities to set up their branches in india how do you see this decision will it affect our educational centers so um Yes, I I heard about this. I'm not sure what rules and regulations uh, are going to be uh, imposed on these foreign universities, which would be desirous of opening uh, their branches in India. So uh, until we know that we know that we don't until so right now we don't know that. So what's what do I, what do how do I see this? So I think this could be a double-edged sword. On the one hand. if foreign universities are allowed to open branches in india then lots of indians who go abroad for those foreign degrees may not have to do that anymore yeah the lots of indian 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 youngsters uh, they go abroad because indian the indian education system we know is is not up to the mark it's it's not where it should be and that's why it is they feel it's better to get a foreign degree so now you could get a yale degree harvard degree oxford degree whatever else degree in india itself so the 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 expenditure will go down drastically obviously these universities i'm sure will be kind of expensive but it won't be anywhere as expensive as having to you know go abroad and you may not get a scholarship there and, and it's extremely expensive you know like uh, 20 30 lakhs a year or something like that that's what i hear yeah so you won't have to pay that much so in in that sense it's good for those who wish those who want to who feel the need to go outside of india to get a degree they will be able to get in, in india itself secondly it could it will certainly give a great amount of competition to india's archaic moribund uh academic institutions universities etc it will give a great deal of competition to them uh, it will also be good for people who are seeking jobs as teachers and and you know professors or whatever they will get uh, good options you know they they could also it will be good for them also to on their cv that i i taught at so and so university and obviously uh, 
so the best uh, fresh talent may be recruited in these foreign universities so it is good for them those who are seeking jobs and all that and it also overall uh, increase the quality of education yeah so i'm talking about the positives right now so it will give uh, i th- i th- i think a much needed needed wake up call to the indian universities who have had no comp- no competition who have had a captive audience and who have the worst of standards you know we have some institutions in india the top level institutions like the which which are which may may be considered to be world class we have really good professors and and scientists etc in some of them in institute of science iits there are lots of problems in the iits as well i've spoken about that but overall it's gonna but if you look at the other universities in india the the standards are nothing to be proud of and i'm sure we all know that yeah so it's gonna be it's gonna give, give a tremendous amount of competition to those universities that have been doing nothing all these years yeah uh, and it's going to be a wake up call for them so it's now going to be survive or or sink or swim that sort of thing hopefully yeah these are the positives now obviously we will have to regulate what these universities these foreign universities they teach in india we don't them we don't want them teaching uh, critical race theory and try to uh, to morph that into critical caste theory or whatever they they'll try to do that we should decide what we want them to teach and what we don't want them to teach ideally i would like to see them offer education in the hard sciences and in uh, engineering and technology i don't want to see humanities and all those fake subjects history of course is not a fake subject sociology also can be a wonderful uh, field of of study and research yeah but the way it's being taught these days is horrific it's terrible and please understand there are no there's no such thing as a social science a social science is is a misnomer it's not a science these are not sciences so we would i would say that the government needs to be very clear about what it would like with what it would like what value it would like these universities to bring to india and what we don't want these universities to do we don't want them to 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 you know try to fragment indian society more and teach uh, the woke culture which is now rife in the west yeah so that is a big danger we don't want any of that i if i were in charge of this of course i'm not i'm just saying hypothetically if i were in charge of this i would say only sciences hard sciences engineering and technology we want that we want those skills we want that knowledge we want that high level of education in the hard sciences in technology in education yeah not in the social sciences we don't need that so that's what i would do may uh, yeah that's that's how uh, as far as i would go i would not want them to start teaching anything they like the, there needs to be very a clear set of guidelines not guidelines but preconditions so i think it's it's a it's a double edged sword like i said there are pros there are cons there are positive significant positives it's going to finally hopefully wake up the indian universities or maybe make them irrelevant that would be great because these universities indian universities these professors who have jobs for life 99% i would say that 95% of the professors are useless 5% i am sure are, are wonderful we know some of them yesterday i had professor desi raju on my podcast what a brilliant man he is what a fascinating book is written it's over here yeah so we have brilliant minds in india no doubt about it but that's the 2% that's the 2% in maybe in a place like the iisc indian institute of science they may be most of them will be brilliant yeah but in most universities our professors are ah 95% of them are mediocre to be kind to them yeah 
most of them are absolutely useless we know that so uh, these new universities could if they end up making the indian the existing legacy in indian institutions uh, universities irrelevant then it may be a good thing yeah so maybe this could be a way of revamping our education system over the next 10 20 years and we need that we do need that and we need the right kind of thinking and all that you know scientific approach uh so we would like the science is not any of the other nonsense that these universities are known to bring and maybe we should also decide what sort of uh, ratio we want of the professors uh, maybe like in the ipl in 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 a 11 member team i think how many foreigners are allowed 3 4 i'm not sure 2 Uh, so we need to have that sort of ratio also in the universities in in the staff you know so maybe 80% staff should be indian 20% foreign that sort of mix or something so, that, that, so we can we can uh, maybe derive some inspiration from the ipl and various uh, sporting leagues yeah you you have to think creatively and obviously logically as well yeah so yeah it's i think it's an interesting experiment and if we do it well it could really end up revolutionizing our education system obviously the education policy also has to change and i'm not sure about the whole reservations thing if you bring reservations into this then what's the point of doing anything at all so yeah that's where it is we still we still don't have sufficient clarity but i i think it's a promising thing if you do it right all right all right Samarth says are India China and Russia fighting against each other for influence in central asia interestingly all have bases in tajikistan yes now we know yeah uh, should india improve its ties with the russian led csto nations uh, what's the full form of that we'll see uh, especially in defense cooperation to keep an eye on china the quad focuses more on the india pacific in the pacific region russia needs india against the against both the us and china so the Okay, let's look at Central Asia. The map. Where's the map? There is never an episode of any of my live streams without the map on the screen. We need the map to orient ourselves. Here is the map. Now we are staring at the Indian Ocean. Wonderful. Let's go to Central Asia, which is uh, essentially the old Uttar Madhya region, which once belonged to our people. Yeah, once. maybe in the future we'll see okay this is central asia which essentially is north of afghanistan uh, up to afghanistan it's part of the indian subcontinent and culturally it's not central asian then you have even tajikistan is actually not turkic uh, tajikistan is an iranic indo-iranic nation yeah the, most of the people but if you look at uh, the xinjiang region which is currently occupied by china then if you look at kyrgyzstan kazakhstan uzbekistan tajikistan um and all these nations it's all central asia some people like to uh, include northern afghanistan into that as well i don't but whatever okay so the question is is are india china russia fighting each other for influence so first of all let us disabuse ourselves of the notion that india has much influence in central asia you only have influence if you have a direct land access to this place yeah and our land access to central asia has been cut off since 1947 1948 Uh, thanks to the british and thanks to our wonderful leaders who did nothing to change the status quo whatever was imposed on india so india has no land access to central asia if we take back pojk then we will uh, once again regain access to to afghanistan our historical access to afghanistan maybe we should take a little bit more than pojk you know because the wakhan corridor is a very mountainous region if you want to build roads it's really really hard to build highways and railways in the wakhan corridor so we need Essentially, more than the Wakhan Corridor, more than POJK, we need a little more 
maybe the northern slice of of, of the temporary artificial nation of pakistan and all that yep so if we get if we regain land access that has been uh, denied to us for the past 80 or so years then we will start having an influence in in central asia we will be start for, first of all we will be able to start helping out the afghans more substantially than we are right now and so on so right now india has we could say minimal or insignificant influence direct influence in central asia obviously all the central asian nations are favorably predisposed towards india because india is a non hegemonic non threatening nation yes nobody fears india which in a sense is a good thing because everyone's open to cooperate of course it's also a bad thing but that's a different story <laughs> so um and and as you say there are all three nations have bases in in tajikistan now first understand this when it comes to central asia the former uh, soviet republics kyrgyzstan uzbekistan kazakhstan turkmenistan etc etc tajikistan today russia regards these this entire region these former soviet republics as part of their strategic extended strategic neighborhood they will not tolerate any other nation encroaching into their strategic sphere of influence strategic zone of influence they regard these nations as the russians regard these nations as their exclusive zone of strategic influence all right that's how it is and they conduct the russians conduct uh, military exercises with almost all nations on a regular ongoing basis to to uh, to maintain those ties and to ensure that these nations remember who who is the uh, who is who is essentially the boss <laughs> that's that's how it is so uh, so now if india has two air bases in tajikistan or one or whatever it is we we have gone through that yeah there is the aini air base and the farkhor air base aini is definitely operational farkhor maybe not not so much so if india has air bases in tajikistan it is only because the russians have allowed it that is how we have to understand this had the russians been not open to this it would not have happened the tajiks would have said no thank you india we, we are not in a position to allow you to open an air base here so because russia has acquiesced to this arrangement that's why it's happened and the chinese also have a, a military base in the in the region of tajikistan the pamir region which the chinese consider to be disputed they have a military base close to the afghan wakhand corridor so the chinese are 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 eyeing the wakhand corridor for a variety of reasons they always have this expansionist mindset so now i'm not sure how much uh, the russians how happy the russians are about the chinese uh, military base in tajikistan but maybe the russians also need to you know mollify pacify china and keep china on their side and you know there there is hard negotiations that happen and the chinese must have extracted this pound of flesh so um, so it's it's good for india that we have these two footholds in central asia we have very ancient relationships with the, with the region that's a whole different story but uh influence apart from that is very less the air bases in tajikistan that india has are only because the tajiks are happy to have that yeah so we obviously uh, have a good relationship with the tajiks apart from that we see if you do you if you want to let's say let's say i want to go to bishkek in kyrgyzstan you know most indians don't even know about kyrgyzstan it's right north of of jammu and kashmir you you go to ladakh you go to pangong or whatever it's just i mean it's a, it's geographically kind of a stone throw away the nation of kyrgyzstan and indians don't know don't even know what it if you want to take a flight to bishkek you have to go through dubai or abu dhabi or, or whatever there are no direct flights as far as i know between india and bishkek or india and tashkent dushanbe you have to go via you know 
you would take a circuitous route. So the people-to-people relationship is kind of non-existent. There are, there are no direct flights between these nations, India and these nations. So uh, it's something that India can work on. So the influence that India has is quite, kind of less. Um, so it's it's basically right now more like a Russia versus China kind of game that's being played. And I'm sure the Russians would like Indian support in this. Obviously, and India would be definitely willing to support Russia in whatever uh, geostrategic endeavors they have in the region. We don't want the Chinese to encroach in this region and, and uh, become more influential than whatever little they are right now. The Chinese obviously have this BRI thing, which they would like to revive. The past three years, it's been dead, the Belt and Road Initiative. And all of that goes through Central Asia. They already have some rail, rail lines and all that that go all the way to to Europe. So it's right now a game of Russia versus China. If India is able to manage to change the geographical status in northern India, then India could become a player in Central Asia. Yeah. But until we do that, it's just, um, it's all, you know, it's, it's, uh, India's influence is minimal and essentially non-existent. We have good diplomatic relations with them we have very friendly diplomatic nation relations with these nations yeah but apart from that there's nothing we are doing if you want to have real influence you have to start building roads that connect india to that region you have to start building railway lines that connect india to that region you have to start uh, having daily flights between india maybe from delhi or mumbai to let's say dushanbe or or ashkabat or or almaty or bishkek or all that hmm? astana karaganda then you will have some influence and that influence is typically constructed through infrastructure and supply chains and supply routes. We don't have that right now. Influence is not created through words. Geo, geopolitical, geostrategic influence comes is, 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 an, is an outcome of creating infrastructure. And India is currently not in a position to create infrastructure. So for India to start having an influence again after almost a century in Central Asia, we will have to reconfigure the geography of Northern India, which is something that actually needs to be done on a priority basis. Yeah, we need to find a way, one way or the other, of, of retaking TOK, uh, taking some more territory out of the, the artificial nation of Pakistan, Connecting once again, reconnecting with with uh, our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, yeah, and through Afghanistan, we can uh, move into Central Asia with obviously with the assent of the Afghan government and all that, which I'm sure they'll be happy to. So that is the deal. Uh, should India improve its ties with the other CSTO nations? Yeah, we should improve our ties with all these nations. We'll, let's start with having daily flights between India and these nations. Yeah, uh, you know, Central Asia is a wonderful place, beautiful place, good culture. Uh, beautiful scenery, mountains, lakes, valleys. Uh, you look at Tajikistan, it, it kind of reminds you of Ladakh. Yeah. So very, very beautiful landscape and, and all that. So it's a great place for tourism. You open that up for Indians, Indians will be happy to go there. Indians nowadays uh, go to so many different nations for tourism. Why not Central Asia, which is in our, in our backyard? So why can't India start daily flights between maybe Delhi or Mumbai? and the various capitals of the Central Asian nations. Why can't we do that? Why are we so, um, you know, not taking these obvious steps? So that's something we could do. And we can obviously uh, start exporting weapons and all that to these nations if if they want, or find other, other creative ways of, if, of uh, improving our cooperation and coordination with these nations. So yeah, that's uh, what I say should happen. But the main thing is we need to 
reconfigure the geography of northern India and make it more favorable for us. And that's something that needs to happen on a priority basis. Yes. Rodrajit says, how can we stop the foreign fundings for anti-India activities? Do you think our government is doing enough to prevent these fundings? I think the government is very aware of what's happening. Uh, I'm sure it's monitoring the bank accounts of, of all the anti-India organizations that exist within India. We know that they all, most of them get foreign funding, yeah, funding from abroad. Now, I'm not going to specify the names of any organizations. I think we all know roughly what they are. Yeah, I am sure the Indian government is keeping a very close eye on it. Now, the question is, why doesn't India stop all this? Because there is foreign geography, geopolitical pressure. Most of this funding comes from the West. Some of it from, may come from other places. The other places from which the funding comes, we have certain, we have good relationships. We have developed good, close relationships of late with those other places. When it comes to the West, the West is antagonistic to India. They want, they would like nothing to than to see India balkanized. And how, what better way to balkanize India than create fissures and divisions within India? And for that, you use well religion and other things in. in we know what the, what the deal is. I don't want to go into specifics. Yeah, And for that, you need mon money. And that money comes in the form of US dollars. M billions of US dollars are poured into these activities, into the uh, bank accounts of various organizations in India every year. Billions of dollars for various such activities that all fall under freedom of expression, freedom of religion, freedom of speech and human rights and all that. Yeah, Right now, the the world order, the so-called rules-based world order is entirely dominated by the West, which means the US. And you cannot do certain things beyond a certain point right now. Yeah. So they are able to influence the internal affairs of India also, less than they influence the internal affairs of other nations, but it's still there. And certain things, it is maybe not the right time to do it. We need to first rise a little bit more. So how do we stop the foreign fundings is the question. Hmm? The foreign fundings, once again, I repeat, come in the form of US dollars. You know, for a nation like India, to let's say India wants to, uh, India has a certain uh, amount of foreign exchange reserves. Yes. I don't know what the quantity is right now. But let's say India wants to acquire an extra $100 billion in terms of US dollars in foreign exchange reserves. What does India have to do for that? India has to trade and earn that extra $100 billion. If China wants to increase its, its foreign exchange reserves by $100 billion, they have to trade and earn that money. It's a lot of effort. Yeah. If the US wants to earn $100 billion, what do they do? They print it. They print the money, either real money or digitally. That money is controlled by them. They can create new money out of thin air anytime they want. That is the unfair advantage the U.S. has. And that's why they can keep on pushing any amount of money into India for anti-India activities. Do you understand this? That is the true strength and power that they have. So right now, there is a concerted move in a certain direction, geographically, uh, geopolitically. Nations are looking for alternatives to the U.S. dollar. There is talk of a BRICS currency, 
India is now the Indian rupee is now accepted in certain nations as as a foreign uh, you know as a currency for foreign trade in Sri Lanka in other nations as well. The Indian UPI is is getting uh, it it is being adopted in various nations. So the in and many nations are now willing to trade willing to purchase oil using Indian rupees. The Russians are. Are uh, they are willing to take Indian rupees in in exchange for oil? Yeah. So the Indian rupees uh, standing has grown, strength has grown. Similarly, the, the Chinese yuan, the Russian ruble have all strengthened. Yeah. You may see the various uh, currency exchange rates and all, and you will see it's not doing well and all. Look at the big picture. Day on, if you look at the fluctuations of currencies on a day-to-day -day basis or a month-to-month -month basis, you will not see the real picture. The big picture is that the non-dollar currencies like the rupee. The ruble and and the yuan, especially maybe even the rial, are now becoming significant alternatives to the U.S. dollar. Not yet, not yet. It could happen, especially if you if they could combine some their their uh, <clears throat> their strengths and create a basket currency like like the like the BRICS currency, which is being proposed. If something like that happens, it's going to be a big blow to the U.S. dollar and to the euro. The euro is essentially you know controlled by the U.S. So the moment this happens and there is an alternative for the world and it's a real viable alternative, a currency that is backed by a basket of, of genuine commodities, not promises and, and debt, then the world will be more inclined possibly to start using that currency. If that currency is a proxy for gold, if the currency is, is, is based on a genuine basket of commodities. And then the US dollar, even if they keep printing it, it may it will become, you know, if, if there is a genuine alternative available, then the US dollar will lose that strength that it has. And then it will be difficult for these foreign powers, Western powers, to fund these anti-India activities to the, to the amount at least that they are doing right now. Yeah. So we have to strengthen our currency. We have to strengthen our economy. We have to maybe join forces with certain other nations and create an alternative system. You do that then the current system will become weakened. There is a global desire, it looks like, for you know moving away from the US dollar. We have had, people have had enough of, of the US dollar and the hegemony of the Americans. So if that happens, then the strength, the power of the US dollar will, will become significantly weakened. I won't say that it, it will evaporate overnight. If it evaporates, then the anti-India activities will cease. They will stop. Yep. Because most of it is, is being done through the US dollar. Nine, I would say almost all of it. So that is the thing. So for these anti-India activities to stop, India needs to get stronger. The Indian economy needs to cross $5 trillion and then $10 trillion of annual GDP. That's the number one. We need to get stronger. Once that happens, we will be in a, in a stronger position to negotiate diplomatically and you know to safeguard our interests a weak nation is open to all kinds of external interference a strong nation can push back so india needs to get stronger and stronger and stronger that's what needs to happen i understand people are not happy that the government is not doing this or doing that but we the government sees things and knows things that you we are not able to see i can guess at what those things are i don't know what i, I don't have the specific details but i i understand how this how the world works so we have to understand that there are lots of things out there that are that we are not able to see. It's all lying in plain sight. The more you study, the more you analyze, the more visible it becomes. But that's how it is. So the funding is all in terms of is all through the US dollar. As the US dollar weakens, the funding will also weaken. 
Yeah, so India needs to rise. India needs to get stronger. That's the deal. Anish says, well, thank you, Anish. Thank you. Uh, the question is, uh, please tell us more about the alternative origin story featuring Dios Pitru, Dios Pitru, Dios Pitru and Prithvi Mata, especially since it's directly related to Zeus and Jupiter and even the, no even the Norse deities. Sadly, most of what is there of this ancient story is totally pro-AIT-AMT. Okay. So, um, so Dios Pitru and Prithvi Mata, these are the, the, you could say the, in, in the Rig Veda, there are mentions of, of these deities, these divinities, and they, Dios Pitru and Prithvi Mata are essentially the parents of all the other gods. Yeah. Whether it is Agni, whether it is, uh, whichever other Rigvedic deities you have, the entire pantheon of gods, of Hindu gods and goddesses, their parents are Dyosh Pitru and Prithvi Mata, the sky father and earth mother. That's how it is. Surya is also a son, the offspring of, of uh, Dyosh Pitru and Prithvi Mata. So these are the old prim primordial parent god and goddess in the Rig Veda. Older than the old, oldest, yeah. Even uh, when it comes to Indra, the, the parentage is kind of uh, there's there's a lack of clarity on the parentage. In in some verses, he is referred to Indra as the, as as the twin of Agni, the twin brother of Agni, and Agni we know is is a child of uh, Dyosh Pitru and Prithvimata. So by that sense, Indra would be the son of Dyosh, Pitru and Prithvimata and uh, and so on. So Indra is referred to as the king of the gods. Yeah. The greatest of the gods, the great warrior. And there are incredible, there are so many references to him in the Rig Veda, more than any other god, I, if I'm not mistaken. But the old, the primal, the primordial god and goddess are Dyosh, Pitru and Prithvimata. And you find parallels with this in other religious systems as well. If you look at... Uh, the old religion of the Turco-Mongol people, people. Uh, Tengrism. It's called Tengrism, but it's not an ism. It's not an Abrahamic religion. You know, there are lots of people who claim that Tengrism is a monotheistic Abra Abra Abrahamic religion. Such nonsense. In Tengrism, also there's a whole pantheon of gods. And the two, primal, the two primary deities are Tengri, the sky father, and Umai, the earth mother. So once again, you have this parallel. Yeah. It's a polytheistic thing. <clears throat> now, so Dyosh, uh, Pitru and Prithvi Mata are the two parents of all the other gods in the Rig Vedic pantheon, which eventually became the pantheon of all the Indo-European, the same, the same of the entire Indo-European culture, which spread across Eurasia, westwards out of India. Yeah? Uh, there is no alternative origin story. This is the story. There's the thing. You can look up the Rigvedic text and all that. It's all there. There are even English translations available online. I will not look it up now and put it on the screen. I'm sure you can do that much of homework if you are so interested. So uh, now when it comes to Zeus and Jupiter, so Dios Pitru became Zeus Pater. And Zeus Pater became Jupiter. That's how it went. Even Western encyclopedias and all, all that will tell you that. So, uh, so the Greek god Zeus Pater is clearly the same. It's a copy. It's a replica of the older Vedic god, Dyosh Pitru. Dyosh Pitru became Zeus Pater. But in the case of Zeus, Zeus Pater, he also has incorporated elements of the great god Indra. So, 
So it's look like it looks like they have combined elements of two deities in one, in all the Western gods that are modeled after Lord Indra. Zeus is modeled after Lord Indra. His primary weapon is a thunderbolt, which is Indra's primary weapon, the Vajra. And Indra has two Vajras. One is the thunderbolt and one is the, the hammer, which is also called the Vajra. The, the Tibetan Vajra and all, you know, these are hammer-shaped objects that are, that are supposed to be holy. So that is the, the, the club, the mace or the hammer. So Indra had two Vajras. One is the thunderbolt and one is the club or the hammer. So uh, Zeus also has the thunderbolt and he also is supposed to be a hammer god. Jupiter is nothing is the, nothing but the Roman version of Zeus. So Jupiter is also a thunder god and all that. And then you have the Nordic deity, uh, the pantheon of deities, whose primary great god is Thor, who is nothing but the same as Zeus and Jupiter and Parjanya and all that. Uh, Perun, Perun, the Slavic Perun, uh, a combination of these uh, of of these deities, you know. So, uh, and when it comes to Zeus and Jupiter and Thor, they very clearly have the same story as Indra. Indra is the oldest of them all. So Indra, in the Rig Veda, is mentioned as having uh, defeated and killed a great serpent, a great Ahi. The old Sanskrit word for snake or serpent is Ahi. Ahi. So there was this great Ahi called Ahi Vritra who had encircled the oceans of the world, all the waters of the world. And this has this had caused a great drought and everybody would die because Vritra has done this, had done this. So Indra went ahead and fought this great serpent, Vritra, and defeated him. And he was able to liberate the oceans of the world and water was once again available to, to all humans. So that was one of Indra's great heroic deeds. So in the story of Zeus, he also battles a great sea serpent and defeats him. In the story of Jupiter, obviously the same story. In the st story of Thor, Thor defeats a great sea monster called Yormungandr. And it's the same story all over again. So uh, they are all modeled after uh, after Indra, actually. And they also uh, have incorporated some elements of the old, of the oldest god that we know of, which is Dyoshpitro, because Zeus Pater is named after Dyoshpitro, but he incorporates elements of Indra. So I think what happened is that there were multiple migrations out of India at some point in time, in the aftermath of the Battle of the Ten Kings, which is mentioned, which is mentioned in the Rig Veda itself, and many other later uh, migrations also. And these migrants they went so far out of India that they kind of lost touch with their ancestral culture, but they continued in some, it, it in some form and certain stories got combined together, certain divinities got combined together and that's how we had the rise of uh, of, of uh, composite deities like Zeus Pater, who is uh, an amalgam of Josh Pitru and, and uh, Indra. And then that um, a copy of that was Jupiter because the, the Romans, they... they absorbed gods of everybody they defeated. They defeated the Greeks. The Romans and the Greeks are actually very, very similar people, more or less the same people at, at that point in time, 2,000 years ago. And, and Greece is right, almost right next to, to Rome, you know, across the Ionian Sea, the Aegean Sea, all that. Mm. Ionian Sea. Um, so yeah, so then they, uh, they absorbed the Greek god and they started calling him Jupiter. Or maybe they had done it before. I don't know exactly what the chronology is, but they are the same divinity. Zeus and Jupiter. So that is the deal. The Norse deities are nothing but uh, the Norse representation of the old Rigvedic pantheon. The Greek pantheon of gods, 
with some exceptions are all, is also a, a replica of the of the rig vedic the vedic pantheon of gods obviously some gods are 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 unique that that may have sprung out of the imagination of the greeks some roman gods may have sprung out of the imagination of the romans but the overall structure of the pantheon is essentially more or less identical as the old the oldest the origin the original pantheon which is the rig vedic pantheon that's the deal but yeah, I, I would invite you all, I would encourage you all to go ahead and read the Rig Veda for an understanding of, of Dhyosh, Pitru and Prithvimata. There are several verses that refer to this de these divinities. If you look at an, if you if you read an English translation, the problem is that you will not see any reference to Dhyosh, Pitru. The, in English translations, he is referred to as the Sky Father or the Heavenly Father. They don't use the term Dhyosh, Pitru for him. They use the term Sky Father or Heavenly Father or something like that. So yeah, you you have to ideally you should read the Sanskrit version or a translation into your native language, maybe whatever Indian native language is 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 your mother tongue. That would be a more accurate translation, I would say. But yeah, go ahead and read it if you are interested in this. It's a very fascinating topic. <clears throat> Rodrajit says, should the Indian government spend money on bullet trains or the Vande Bharat Express? Or should India, the Indian government improve our local trains first? What's your opinions on this? So, you know, um, life is not a zero-sum zero game. It's not a question of either this or that. Only one thing we should do first. It's not like that. It's, uh, you know, we, we get this questions all the time, this question all the time. India has so much poverty and so much all that. So why is India developing a space program? Why are you developing rockets and futuristic technology when you have so many problems? Well, they did not ask the same question to the to the to the to the Russians. Russia was devastated in the aftermath of World War II. You have no idea of the devastation Russia suffered. That the Russians went ahead with the space program. Why why did nobody ask the, question, the same question to the Russians? Yeah, uh, the Chinese until the 1990s were an extremely poor nation. But they've had a space program since the 1960s and 1970s with the help of the Russians. Yeah. So the thing is that you have to develop everything in parallel. You can't prioritize only one thing. I will only do this first and only when I perfect this will I go for something else. That's not how it works. You have to... India is a nation of 1.3 billion people. India is... You know, the per capita GDP is still not where it should be. But India is no longer a weak, poor nation. As a as a nation, we are actually powerful and we are rich. The government has access to incredible amounts of money. Yes. So we need to work on these things together at the same time, in parallel. We need to have start building a bullet train network. We need to start building a high-speed rail network like the Vande Bharat Expresses. And in the meanwhile, we should also start working on improving the quality of local trains. And eventually, we want to replace those local trains also with much faster trains. It's all something you need to do in parallel, not one after the other in sequence. No, not like that. Okay? So what the government is doing is exactly the right thing. Let people criticize. And yeah, the, the, the purpose of all this criticism through the media and various other people is to influence the minds of the ordinary people and make them feel like the government is doing something wrong. And the government is using our money for the wrong purposes. That's not the case. We need a high-speed rail network. Ideally, we should have bullet trains everywhere. Bullet trains are expensive, so we go for Vande Bharat trains. Also, the most important routes will be covered, should be covered first with the bullet trains. Eventually, in the next 50 years, maybe all trains should be bullet trains. Maybe, yeah, 50 years. 
so right now the mumbai uh, i think right now they they're constructing a mumbai ahmedabad link yeah re, uh, bullet train link eventually we should connect that with delhi maybe mumbai to bangalore bangaluru mumbai to chennai chennai to kolkata whatever the main cities you know let's say the top 10 cities those should be interconnected eventually first through bullet trains the other uh, routes should be improved slowly gradually more vande bharat expresses and local trains also slowly should improve them but maybe that the the aim should be that in the next 50 years most of this should be replaced by bullet trains next 50 years it's not too much to think of it that way 50 years so that's the kind of thinking we need to have so it's not like we need to prioritize only prioritize only one thing first and only when you perfect that will you go to the next step no do everything in parallel that's how you will uh, develop lots of different kinds of capabilities at the same time that's what needs to happen all right <clears throat> sharma is big yes sir sharma is big uh, the chinese have a deity called the monkey king which is their lo- version of lord hanuman how did they come to start revering him did lord hanuman ever visit china and uh, how else has sanatan dharma influenced them look lord hanuman clearly was a historical figure the ramayan is a historical event this happened before the mahabharat and we could tentatively date the ramayan to i don't know several thousand years before today we know that there are mentions of the river saraswati in the ramayan in the saraswati is a great powerful river in the time of the ramayan it's depicted like that it's not depicted as a river that's drying out yeah and the river started drying out after 6000 bc that is 8000 years before today and it dried out mostly uh by about 1500 bc that's three and a half thousand years before today so the ramayan would have ca- cl- happened closer to 8000 bc than to 1500 bc that's how i see it there will be people who disagree and people who have all these dates i am not going into that controversy that is not not my concern right now so the ramayan most likely happened closer to 8000 bc was there any china in 8000 bc simple question china is about 3000 years old chinese civilization is about 3000 3 and a half thousand years old if you want to be nice to them yeah that's it then why would lord hanuman ever visit china i mean there is no evidence of him having done that and china did not even exist as a culture and a civilization at the time of the ramayan therefore there is no connection that way between lord hanuman and china all right now the question is uh, the the monkey king right uh, what do the chinese call the monkey king they have novels in which he is a he is a major character let's i think he is called sun wukong or something let's google this let us google it right uh, so the so the chinese have all right one second so the chinese have this this deity which is very clearly a influenced by lord hanuman uh, chinese monkey king sun wukong i believe it's called sun wu wukong wukong okay let's go to wikipedia as always let me uh, remind you that wikipedia is not always not necessarily a reliable source of information especially when it comes to indian culture and history but i'm just uh, taking a cursory look at this so this the monkey king yes sun wukong in, in mandarin chinese is a legendary mythical figure uh best known as the main character in the 16th century chinese novel journey to the west yes journey to the west is a novel that essentially is the story of, of the chinese pilgrim xuanzang who traveled to india 
and it's the story of his travels and the 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 adventures he had the hardships the hardships he faced while traveling across the mountains and central asia and all that and shwanzang uh, essentially came to india to to gain knowledge to gain great indian knowledge the various buddhist sutras and other sutras that he took back to china translated into chinese from sanskrit and all that um the chinese obviously we know they called india um tianzhu the center of heaven they considered themselves to be the center of earth the middle kingdom but they considered india to be the center of heaven and india's influence on china is is, is at least 2000 years old at least uh and it's all been a one way traffic of cultural influences india has absorbed no chinese culture at all in the past 2000 years but china has absorbed incredible humongous amounts of chi- of indian culture yeah uh, so one of these is is sun wukong so in this novel what is it called journey to the west sun wukong the monkey king is one of the main characters who helps shwanzang in in the in his journey to india and uh, i so what does it say the monkey has certain supernatural powers because of uh, taoist practices and uh, amazing strength and he is the king of all the other monkeys and things like that yeah uh, and uh, there is speculation over here somewhere i believe that uh, yeah the ramayana right the monkey king was possibly influenced by the hindu deity ramayan the monkey god the, the hindu deity hanuman the monkey god from ramayan it's not possibly it's definitely there is no other monkey god in the world no other monkey king in the world the original one is hanuman the chinese have had 2000 years of indian influence so obviously this this and obviously even the chinese are a polytheistic uh, culture some chinese i believe they they uh they revered certain monkeys yeah they they considered certain monkeys the gibbons or whatever to be uh, divinities or something you know there is, so there so there, there have been some elements of of uh, revering monkeys as gods or divinities even in chinese culture it's been there but the character of the monkey king bears so much resemblance the character of sun wukong bears so much resemblance to hanuman that it's it can be no other uh so so that's what it is so the monkey king the sun wukong is essentially a chinese uh representation of lord hanuman it's it's inspired from lord hanuman and uh, yeah it's it's uh, one of the divinities in chinese culture and religion uh, sanatan dharma has influenced the chinese immensely Uh, mostly via buddhism buddhism is part of sanatan dharma by the way and i'm sure that people will come and say no blah 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 i don't care it is what it is you may like to disagree it's your choice but uh, so the chinese uh, and, and it's not just buddhist divinities that you see in china you see all the various hindu divinities also in china there have been hindu temples in china and the chinese transmitted the same culture or eastwards to japan and in japan you have every single hindu god and goddess gods and goddesses that are classified today as hindu gods and goddesses not buddhist gods and goddesses you know uh, benzai ten in japan is is saraswati and then lakshmi is there uh, lord mahakal is there lord shiva is there which is the same thing you know what i mean yeah so it's had in an immense amount of influence on china on eastern asia on japan on korea and southeast asia it's a whole different story so yeah it's been there right om says can india use the g20 summit to promote tourism and change india's image worldwide so these are two different things and there is some overlap 
tourism and changing india's image worldwide there is some overlap between these two things so so i am participating in this uh, in the s20 component of the g20 thing at this month end the, the the inaugural meeting of the s20 event it's in pondicherry puducherry and uh, one of the days is entirely devoted to tourism because tourism is an integral is has been made an integral part of all these events of all the g20 events that are going to be held in india this year i think it's a g20 policy yeah so tourism is going to be an integral part of this so one so if the meeting is two days or three days one day is entirely devoted to traveling around the, the local place which will be puducherry in my case this month end and all the foreign delegates will get to see or whatever the the puducherry has to offer you know uh, the local sites and attractions uh, the local culture the local cuisine and all that and there there are going to be events all across india in north in the northeast of india in uh, in bhopal in lakshadweep in in all the parts of india in 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 ladakh in jammu and kashmir as well yeah lots and lots of events over the entire year of india's presidency and tourism is going to be an integral part of that so it's definitely going to give an enormous amount of exposure uh, of uh, two foreign uh, delegates Uh, to india yeah so they, they are going to get a great amount of exposure to indian culture to indian history indian architecture and all these things which is good for india uh now how do we change india's image worldwide we have to put our best foot forward in whatever meetings uh, are whatever events are being organized in india we have to showcase our strengths our achievements our talent uh the wonderful young people that we have what what uh, abilities they have what potential they have you know what we have achieved what we are working on various indian institutes of whatever whether it is in the in the field of culture whether it's in the field of science whether it's in administration whether it's in governance uh whether it's in science and technology whether it's in industry we have to showcase all of this and that's what the government is going to do yes uh so we need to put our best step uh, foot forward and uh, clearly we uh, we the government is appointed the right leaders in in all the various things and that's what we're going to do so it's going to be a great opportunity this entire year to showcase what our achievements are what our beautiful nation is like yeah uh, what our potential is what our capabilities are and it's 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 a great opportunity for us to use this year to get to become even better you know raise our standards like i keep saying so yeah the g20 summit is definitely going to uh, be something that will do all these things yeah swapnil says can you explain uh, explain the concept of first principles thinking in science and philosophy and how can we apply it in our day to day life well i am not sure about philosophy uh, i mean i am no expert in philosophy i am not a philosopher as as far as i know huh So the concept of first principle thinking uh, first principles thinking is something that i understand is from science as far as i know yeah first principles thinking foundational principles thinking it's about a certain kind of thinking process it's about a certain kind of process of reasoning how do you construct your reasoning most of us we we reason or we think about things in a very specific narrow manner yeah um we we have this dogmatic dogmatic kind of thinking people there is a certain accepted version of the truth and we just believe it we don't ever question it yeah 
first principles thinking is about questioning everything questioning everything at all so for instance uh, let me give you a few examples let me give you an example from science for instance why do crystals let's talk about science first then i will give you examples of other other things as well so in science you have crystals you know crystals quartz crystals diamonds we all know what a diamond looks like i, I guess yeah so the question is why are diamonds the way they are or why are crystals the way the way where they are why do they have these specific shapes why do why did they always come in a certain kind of shape quartz crystals always take a certain kind of shape diamonds always come in a certain kind of shape why is it that way why do they have these properties so then you ask yourself why why is it like this why is this angle there or this thing and all so then you will start realizing so then you have to think from a foundational perspective from the foundational uh, principles of physics so what laws of physics apply to crystals and then you will realize that none of the newtonian laws of physics apply to crystals then you will realize if you go dig deeper into it that a crystal is a macroscopic quantum bound state it's a purely quantum object it's a, it's a giant molecule that's what a crystal is and its properties depend on on the on what the crystal is made of so so in case of diamond it's a tetrahedral uh, carbon crystal yeah one carbon atom attached to four different uh, carbon atoms and all that which gives it, it, it this incredible strength uh, hardness and all that so that's how you think in terms of the foundational principles the concepts of physics the first principles of physics and mathematics now let's say let's apply it to something else let's say you have a kid you have a kid and you tell the kid okay beta it's it's 9 o'clock in the night let's go to sleep and the kid will say why why should i go to sleep you know kids are really good at thinking from first principles because they keep asking why 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 and most parents will say no it's why because i tell you so i said so that's why that's not how it works so then you 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 force the child to accept dogmatic thinking instead of answering the question of why if a child asks you why should i sleep at night you have to tell them that you need to sleep at a certain time and wake up at a certain time to have a healthy circadian cycle the the body the brain has something called a circadian cycle and it needs to be maintained regularly at a you know the sleep wake cycle so the first thing when you wake up is that you need to see the sun sunlight you need to have sunlight on your skin maybe uh, indirectly in your eyes that that you know transforms the the uh, that that gives certain chemical signals to the brain and then it, it gives you about 14 15 hours of waking time and then you sleep again you have to have a regular routine of that so that's why you have to sleep at 9 yeah or or whatever time and and because you're a kid you need more sleep than adults that's why you have to explain it properly and also then the child will say but what if i don't sleep why should i sleep then you have to explain why sleep is necessary if you don't sleep then you're going to be your your brain will not function properly why will the brain not function properly is the next question so you have to go deeper and deeper into it and, and break it down to the first principles the foundations yeah why do you need sleep and that's a that's a question that's not really been answered in 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 uh, medicine but that's how it is so you have to keep asking why 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 what exactly you to start with the question of what exactly do i think then you have to ask yourself why do i think this and how do i know this is true and what if th- this is not true yeah so keep asking why i think there is this principle of asking why five times why 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 you ask a question why you get an answer then you ask why that then you get a different answer then you ask why that then you get a different answer and it's uh, it's or oh, you can apply this to to business you can apply this to to engineering you can apply this to history 
I always keep talking about causality in the causal chain. It's not enough to study history from the perspective of memorizing dates because that tells you nothing. You have to think of history as a causal chain. Why did this happen? Why did Chinggis Khan refuse to invade India? Yes, that is an example of first principles thinking. It's the video with the most views on this channel. That's where I applied first principles thinking. Chinggis Khan did not leave behind a diary or a memoir or a record in which he explains his behavior. He has left behind nothing. So we only have the data of what he did in his life. And then we have to apply first principles of human psychology and, 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 and the laws of power and geostrategy and try to figure out why he did something. Why, why, why? So that's how I was able to deconstruct why he refused to invade India. Because you have, to, you have to go through his entire life history, all the decisions he took to understand the thinking patterns and the behavioral patterns he had, the decision-making patterns he had. Then you understand what his motivations are, what his psychology is. And then you can understand, then you use that and apply it to his, the, his decision of the question that he had, should I invade or not? And when you understand the pattern and the thought process and the psychology, then you will understand why he did not invade India. It's all about first principles thinking. You think this way, you will have a much better chance at success in the various endeavors you are in life. If you think of, if you if you have the different thought process, the dogmatic thinking, that you just think what everybody else wants you to think, the accepted wisdom, then there will ever ne never be any human progress. For instance, when I was a kid, not when I was a kid, when I was in college and all, I always used to eat an ice cream <laughs> when I had a cough or a cold. Now this goes against all accepted wisdom. We know that if you go to a, if you are someone who is accustomed to living in a warm place, and you go to a cold place, let's say you go to Ladakh in winter, where right now it will be minus 10 degrees in lay or something, minus 10, minus 15 degrees. Yeah, your nose is going to run, you're going to get a cough and cold and all that. So cough and cold are caused by, nose running and all, are indeed caused by very cold weather. Weather, atmospheric conditions. Yes, and of course the altitude is also there. But it doesn't mean that it's caused by eating cold things. And it also doesn't mean that if you eat cold things, it's going to make your cough or cold worse. Yeah, if it was so, then the people who live in cold places, they would have a miserable life every time they had a cough or a cold, but it's not the case. <laughs> yeah, so I always found, I always, I, I tried this out. I'm an experimenter in some, some things, yeah. Um, I like to question things because of the first principles thinking, which I think it's not something because of my scientific training. It's something that I've always had. So whenever I had a cough or a cold, I would eat an ice cream, you know, and see if it, if it makes things worse. It never made anything worse. Maybe it's only specific to me. Maybe for some other people, it makes things worse. And of course, if you believe that if you do something, it's going to make your life worse, it will happen. Yeah. So it's about that. But if you, so it's, it's about being, uh, doing things that are, against accepted wisdom only after you think it through properly. You could call it scientific thinking, you could call it first principles thinking, foundational principles thinking, whatever it is. It's all about questioning. It's all about being clear, clearly analyzing things. What do I think? Why do I think this? How do I know it is true? How do I know this is not true? What if I did this and what happens? And you try to break it down to the first principles, the foundational principles. And that's how it is. So I think Elon Musk has spoken about this. That's why it's become very famous these days. What is first principles thinking and all that? Yeah. So that's the deal. That's what I could offer you in, in, in brief. 
Daniel Nicholson says, okay, let's apply first principles thinking to this. Daniel Nicholson says, why are Andhra Pradesh and Odisha so prone to cyclonic storms? How would the global climatic climate change climate how would the global climatic change affect the increased decrease in cyclone frequency in our eastern seaboard? Let us uh, put the map on the screen because we are talking about yeah. Here's the map. Where's the map? Here's the map. So and it's not only about the east coast of India. See, the, some of the most terrible cyclonic storms uh, have uh, in the past have occurred in Bangladesh, in Bengal. So it's the entire eastern coast of India, even Tamil Nadu, etc., even, even Sri Lanka. Typically, it's the eastern coast of India that bears the brunt of these regular cyclonic storms that uh, occur in the, in the Sea of Kalinga. Yeah? And it's not only there you will see that there is something called a hurricane season in the US. It's always on the East Coast. It's typically on the East Coast, mostly uh, often in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, uh, Typically, the southern states of the US are hit repeatedly every year. In, and uh, that's how it is. So, th so, so the question is, then you have to apply first principles thinking. I'm doing this in real time now. Yeah, I've not thought this through. You have something called the atmosphere on our planet. The planet has a magnetic field. The planet rotates around its own axis. It goes around the sun. It's not in a circular orbit, but in an elliptical orbit. And the axis of the rotation is tilted. It's not straight with respect to the plane of the elliptic, uh, the, the plane of the solar system. So you have seasons on the planet because of this tilt of the axis. So the, at any given point in time, either the, either, either the northern hemisphere or the southern hemisphere is hotter. And obviously, the, the side of the Earth that is facing the sun at any given point in time is going to be warmer. Because of these differences in temperature, you have currents in the atmosphere and currents in the oceans of the, of the world, in the oceans. There are currents, you know. In Japan, you have the Japanese current, which is called the Kuroshio current. In the Atlantic, you have... Uh, what's called the gulf stream that also impacts that also passes through passes uh, impacts or affects uh, britain the united kingdom yeah see the uk is at the same latitude as as newfoundland where you have polar bears newfoundland is incredibly cold you have polar bears there the uk is at the same latitude but it's much warmer why is that why is that it's because of the gulf stream the ocean current which is a warm current in the cold atlantic so because of the various uh, uh, phenomena that are caused by the Earth's tilt, by the seasons, by the day and night boundary and all that, and by the rotation of the Earth around the sun, sun we have these various uh, uh, atmospheric and meteorological phenomena on our planet. So uh, there is something called the equator where the temperature remains more or less the same. There's a lot of rain there. And there are these various ocean currents and there are various what they call trade winds. And these trade winds, they change direction every six months or so. Yeah. Uh, so these winds also, they, they, they reverse direction and all. And in India, we have the monsoon season, which is also a periodic thing. It's a seasonal thing. Yeah. So all weather on a large, if you look at weather from a day-to-day -day basis, the change of weather on a day-to-day -day basis, you will get confused. But if you look at, look at it from a year-to-year -year perspective, you will see these patterns of weather, these recurring patterns that you see in weather, in climate, all across the planet. And you can actually kind of predict, predict that if you have the right amount of data. So on the basis of all these things, you have certain 
phenomena which also depend on geography yeah so over here in indonesia we have these islands that lie on the equator and there are these tremendous uh, tropical storms that happen all the time south of india there are no islands so the weather over here along the equator is very different the climate in in the weather is very different along the indonesian islands then let's see in the maldives where the islands are very insignificant very small so the weather in indonesia is very different from that of the maldives and this region indonesia etc it's quite close to the sea of kalinga so called bay of bengal and maybe so i'm saying maybe okay i don't have the answers because i'm just thinking of about this from first principles so you have the warm air down here and you have cooler air here and you have the the monsoon and you have the tropical climate seasonal climate so maybe it is the interaction of the indian monsoon the the uh, moisture laden clouds and and the cooler temperatures they bring along with the hotter air and the and the air currents of the uh, equatorial region that lead to these uh, churning cyclonic storms that are spawned in the indian monsoon repeatedly there's at least one cyclonic storm every year typically in the monsoon season but also uh, at other, other times also sometimes yeah and a similar process most likely happens in uh the eastern atlantic seaboard of the us where you have these repeated hurricanes that that hammer that batter the east coast of, of the us multiple times every year that's also seasonal so all weather on a macroscopic scale large scale is seasonal and you can predict that this these few months a certain kind of weather is going to be visible so it's because of these so these cyclonic storms that uh, that batter the eastern coast of india that that this phenomenon is because of the cyclic nature of the atmosphere of of the weather and it all the the first the foundational principles and the reasons the the root cause of that is the tilt of the earth's rotational axis with respect to the the uh, the uh, plane of the solar system it's because of the uh, because of the day night uh, boundary so one side is cooler one side is hotter and also because of the seasons so all of that causes weather and weather that is cyclical in nature and that's why you have a storm season a cyclone season in eastern india and a hurricane season in the us and there will be certain such other patterns in all parts of the world there is the el nino and el niña uh, you know uh, phenomena also that happen in a in a cyclical manner every few years and you have the indian monsoon which also is uh, a yearly phenomenon so that's the first principles thinking that you can apply to this question okay chin mai sarpoddar says uh, i want to ask you three questions uh, okay let's take one i i'll take one question let's take the first question what's the first question if a living organism is also ultimately made of atoms and all non living things are also made of atoms like this like this box everything else then what exactly makes a living being living what exactly is life then <laughs> yes everything is made of atoms yeah we are made of atoms the, the metal here is made of atoms the wood the books which is all all that this thing here is everything is atoms my clothes all atoms yeah so the question you are asking is what exactly differentiates life living organisms from from non living material non living substances so there are several characteristics that are common to all living organisms firstly they are made of cells you take a microscope and you take let's say blood sample or whatever you go you put it in a slide you mount it in a microscope put the light on and you go deep into it you will see cells red blood cells white blood cells other cells cells human tissue 
is made of cells. There are fat cells, there are muscle cells, um, and all kinds of other cells, right? Skin cells, and there are specialized cells and so on. So all living organisms are made of cells. Those cells obviously are made up of, of proteins and other things, and, and deep inside you have atoms, yeah? So atoms are at the foundation of everything in, in the the 4% universe that we, we see, yeah? Uh, these atoms, they create, they give rise to molecules. These molecules give rise to various chemicals, chemical substances. The chemical substances are what make, are, are what make up life. The carbon chemistry that, uh, that we are, we are carbon creatures. Our carbon-based life, life forms. So all living beings are made up of cells. You will not find any living being that doesn't have a cell. Yeah. So cells are the basic unit of life. Now all living beings have either DNA or RNA. Take viruses. You have RNA viruses, you have DNA viruses. The most infamous RNA virus of these days is, you know what? You know what? So uh, all living beings are made of cells. All living beings have DNA or RNA. Living beings can grow and develop. They can reproduce and pass on their genetic information to their offspring. Non-living beings, non-living materials can't do this. Yeah, and uh, living beings can regulate their in internal environment. We human beings all have a certain temperature, ninety-eight point point whatever degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, you go about that; it's a fever, and things are not well. So, in your normal healthy state, you are able to uh, regulate your internal temperature and all the internal sub subsystems, systems, and subsystems that make up your body. And this is something that applies to all living beings. They can regulate their internal environment, and they respond to external stimuli. And living beings evolve. Like I said, they, pa they can pass on their genetic information to their offspring. And you, this happens over generations, generation after generation. And eventually there are, there is evolution. Living beings evolve. And there is natural selection, survival of, of the fittest in their environment. Right? So that's the deal. These are some of the, uh, the characteristics of living beings. Now, when I spoke, I spoke about viruses. Viruses are curious creatures. They are kind of on the boundary between living and non-living, living and dead. Yeah. So they don't regulate their internal environment. They can't do that. And viruses don't even respond to stimuli. Mostly they don't respond to stimuli. Yeah. But they do have DNA or RNA. They do have a cell membrane, a cell structure. They do reproduce and pass on genetic information uh, to their offspring. And they do evolve. They do mutate and evolve. We know they evolve enough. <laughs> so yeah, viruses are, uh, they, they are like crystals in a sense, you know. They of course have proteins and all that. Yeah, and they have DNA or RNA. So viruses are on the dividing boundary kind of between living and non-living. But the, the fact that they have DNA or RNA, in my opinion, makes them living beings. Yeah. So these are the characteristics of living organisms. We are living organisms. Our dog, our cat, our, our bird, pets, whatever. Uh, and whatever else we see, trees, all living organisms, they all share these characteristics. Even plants respond to external stimuli. Maybe not in the sense that we do, but they do. You see, uh, if you see, uh, what, they, what do they call it? Uh, what do they call it? That video in which you speed time up. I, I forgot the term. You see those videos in which, in which the time is speeded up and you see uh, the, the behavior of, of a plant in, let's say, 60 seconds, the, the, what it does in three days, then you will see that it responds to stimuli. 
you put a light on it's going to turn in the direction to get more light and so that it can enhance the photosynthesis in the nighttime the, the leaves they droop down in the clothes and that sort of thing if you if you see a time lapse a time lapse of a forest from above you will see that the trees they shift their positions multiple times in a day and they all try to stay away from their neighbors and keep some space in between so even plants respond to their external environments and all that so that's essentially the difference between living and non-living even though everything is made up of atoms all right um Daniel Nicholson says, do elephants have superior intelligence compared to other animals, given the size of, size, sizes of their heads vis-a-vis -vis the thorax and abdomen? Could elephants eventually evolve into a civilized species like humans if we don't intervene from outside? Are we a civilized species? <laughs> uh, uh, okay, you may. Okay, I know what I know what you're asking. Yeah, so uh, elephants uh, they have enormous heads. Yeah. Let's talk about not head size, but brain size. So the human brain, I think on average is about 1.3, 1.2, 1.3, 1.4, 1.4 kilos. Let's say 1.3 kilos, the average weight of the human brain. When it comes to the elephant, the average weight, I believe, is 5 kilos. Almost four, four times the size of a human brain, roughly. So elephants have massive, enormous brains compared to humans. If you if you compare that with the gorilla, excuse me, gorillas they have brains that are roughly half a kilo in in, in weight. Our chimpanzees, uh, chimpanzee cousins who are gorillas and chimpanzees are very closely related to us. Gorillas are one are half a kilo. Chimpanzees are about zero point four kilos, four hundred grams. The brain quite small. When it comes to dolphins, aquatic creatures, dolphins have slightly larger brains than humans, one point six kilos. I think the dolphin. When it comes to orcas, the killer whales, which don't ever hurt humans, their brains weigh about 7 kilos, even larger than elephants. Yeah, And the sperm whale, it has the largest brain that we know of. It's about 9 kilos. 9 kilos. That's enormous. And you see, all these species, they are very highly intelligent. Now, they may not be intelligent in the same way as us, but they are highly social they are we we know that they are playful they, they when it comes to let's say orcas you know the killer whales we know that they cooperate in hunts they pass on hunting techniques com complex and sophisticated hunting techniques to their children they train them repeatedly it's like a training course of a few weeks on how to how to you know perfect a certain cooperative hunting technique very sophisticated hunting techniques so orcas are highly intelligent they communicate they are known to communicate with human beings so can dolphins sperm whales also they they have enormous brains and they are very intelligent they have very social uh lives very complex social lives when it comes to elephants elephants are incredibly intelligent uh they are they i don't know they, they clearly have emotions they mourn their dead they revisit the 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 place where their ancestors died year after year after year for decades they have very long lasting memories yeah, elephants are very intelligent. They also have strong emotions. Elephants, believe me, elephants have strong emotions. Emotions like compassion, emotions like lung, love, emotions like anger. Good God, mm -hmm. elephants can get angry. You know, and the same thing you will see in our primate relatives, the gorillas and the chimpanzees. So, I don't know if elephants have superior intelligence compared to some other creatures. Maybe they do. Definitely, an elephant would have a superior intelligence compared to, let's say, a squirrel. That's what it looks like. 
and you, you know when it comes to evolution whether they will evolve into let's say civilized species i i think in some ways elephants are very civilized already um <laughs> so so will they evolve into a different kind of species evolution is a constant never ending process but it doesn't happen over a course of weeks or months it takes typically hundreds of thousands of years for evolution to to change the way a species appears and behaves uh the oldest evidence that we have of of uh, anatomically modern humans homo sapiens uh, is found in uh, was found in a cave in north africa jebel irhud i believe in algeria uh so th- these specimens of homo sapiens fossils are about 300000 years old 3 lakh years old they are anatomically like us but there are certain differences yeah like the the brow is much heavier you know much larger if you see so if you see chimpanzees or gorillas they've got very big brows over here a big ridge over here so the jebel jebel irhud homo sapiens have slightly slightly larger brow uh, brow, brow bones or whatever it is you know the brow ridge and all so there are certain differences that you find in the humans that were alive 3 lakh years before today and yet they were anatomically more or less just like us they were homo sapiens the same species as, as us so homo sapiens has not evolved much in 3 lakh years and if you look at the history of humanity overall um uh the the human chimpanzee split happened about 2 million years before today so that that's how, that's like um uh, it is like uh, 20 lakh years you know in, in terms of lakhs and crores so typically it takes about half a million years about 5 lakh years for significant evolutionary changes to become visible apparent so if you give if you wait for another 5 lakh years i'm sure elephants will look different they may have evolved in a different way so evolution is something that is essentially about adaptation long term to environmental changes and obviously you want to keep on increasing your chances of survival in whatever changing environment you live in and that's something that takes a lot of time like i said hundreds of thousands of years so eventually elephants will will evolve into something else and in the past if we we only have to look at the past history of elephants you know elephants in if you look at the deep ancestry of elephants then their ancestors maybe like several tens of millions of years ago were dog like creatures if you look at the ancestors of whales whales you know the ancestors of whales were dog or bear like creatures that lived on on land and then over millions of years they adapted to start living in 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 uh, in oceans so this is a process that takes a very long time minimum half a million years typically tens of millions of years so eventually elephants will evolve into something else eventually we will evolve evolve into something else if we hang around that long yeah uh, we have been around for a very long time humans our ancestors survived the the chicxulub impact event of 66 million years ago which killed off the non avian dinosaurs the avian dinosaurs are still around i see them every day so yeah okay <laughs> samarth gandhi says do dogs understand human language to some extent and how do dogs process television uh dogs do understand human language uh dogs, certain dogs breed dog breeds not species certain dog breeds are very intelligent the indian dog is a very intelligent uh, breed of dogs yeah it's one of the oldest breed of dogs maybe the maybe the oldest breed of dogs it's the indian so called pariah dog yeah 
so dogs are very intelligent as we know they are they are man's best friend human beings best friend and they do understand human language they don't understand all the the nuances and all that the details but they understand uh, basic conversation if two people are talking if you have a dog who is a pet and is he or she has grown up with you and you and your family members talk they will understand most of it they will not understand deeply philosophical topics or complicated uh, things like that politics and geopolitics and 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 uh, things like that but regular basic conversation let's go shopping let's go to the park what shall we eat shall we eat this i'm angry i'm happy all that stuff they will understand you tell your dog okay you go out of the window you go out of the door and sit outside for 5 minutes they may not understand they may not understand what 5 minutes means but they will certainly go and sit outside and they will do what what you tell them to do if they are well if they so if they, if they are so inclined so dogs understand more than we believe they do they understand human language you will see dogs uh, throwing tantrums and arguing and i don't want this i want that <laughs> all that cats also understand a lot but of course cats cats pretend not to understand anything <laughs> cats also understand a lot but cats are a very different kind of creature they are also they the two big the two major pets that we have the species that we are the most closely allied with are dogs and cats and they are very different yeah so cats also actually understand human language but they pretend not to they they pretend not to pay attention because that's how they are that's what cats do we own dogs but cats own us that's how it is now how do dogs process television in the past you had those cathode ray tube televisions those those box tvs right um in the box tv you have a electron gun that that you know paints a picture on the screen line by line and it it happens at i don't know how many frames per second 24 frames per second or whatever it's a line by line thing yeah so i think i believe dogs could not see that even cats could not see the problem they would only see the line coming out but today we have lcd led lcd whatever it is the technology that is something dogs and cats can see just as well as us because you will see dogs watching tv you even see cats watching tv and watching movies and, and reacting to things you know when there's a horror movie they'll react they'll show fear and they'll run off whatever so they when it comes to the new technology that we have the the led or lcd led i believe the dogs and cats can see it just as well as us yeah the same thing they see color differently from us and uh, and they see certain uh, certain frequencies of light spectra or certain certain wavelengths of light that we can't see so maybe that is something that's missing in in the led uh, images that we use for our convenience so they may find the image to be kind of weird from their perspective because it doesn't show uh, things in those wavelengths possibly but uh, it is well known that dogs and cats are known to watch tv and actually get engrossed in things so that's how it is yeah rinigan says did chinese teach manipuris how to make bricks is meite mayek a combination of lie and me language see meite mayek is not a language it is a script yes it is the script that is used to write the meite the manipuri language uh, in the past because of historical events uh, the manipuri language was written in the bengali script so you go back to people who studied in school 30 years ago they would be more familiar and more comfortable with the bengali script you go to manipur today all the kids uh, they learn they are taught to write and read in the news in the actually the original script the meite mayek script which has been reconstructed of late uh 
so methi mayak is a script it is not a language now the manipuri language is classified as a tibeto burman language which means it is it is uh, it has characteristics that are similar to the tibetan language and also it has characteristics that are similar to the burmese language so that's a whole spectrum of languages let's put the map on the screen map uh yeah map where's manipur manipur is here in the far east of india south of nagaland north of mizoram east of myanmar west of meghalaya and assam yeah um west of west of assam silchar etc is very close actually to to imphal and all, and all that yeah so uh there's a whole uh, bunch of languages which are the tibeto burman languages which are spoken in burma in the far east of in the so called northeast of india and in tibet and tibet is classified as a sino tibetan language why why does sino have to come in there but whatever the you know the linguists they have made a whole mess of the entire science of linguistics linguistics should have been a science they've turned it into a joke uh it was a science in the days of uh, of acharya panini yeah he is the father of linguistics at that time it was a science now it's a joke so anyhow so uh but it is indeed true that mani the, the methi language manipuri language has characteristics of 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 tibetan for instance in in the tibetan language a place is called la like shangrila we know shangrila la means place in manipuri also la means a place uh, for instance kangla a dry place that sort of thing so um so manipuri the manipuri language the methi language is a tibeto burman language i'm not sure what if what if any connection it has with the lai and the mi language right now about the chinese teaching manipuri is how to make bricks so that uh, i believe it comes from the the story of khagemba there was a manipuri king let's put that on the screen now uh let's uh, go here okay i'm going to read wikipedia once again don't ever trust wikipedia i'm just putting it for reference there was a manipuri king called khagemba he was called the conqueror of the chinese i believe he would have conquered some territory in in yunnan uh, which uh, some people would say is part of china currently it's part of china so he conquered some territory in yunnan and uh, he is called the conqueror of china uh, he ruled between 1597 and 1654 uh, let's put a map on the screen so manipur as you see is is over here yeah tungu is the this is the burmese kingdom the ming dynasty at that time it it appears was uh it had a boundary with the kingdom of manipur and it looks uh, and, and we know that uh, king khagemba did conquer some territory that was part of the chinese ming empire at the time so he is called the conqueror of the chinese and he brought back certain uh, several prisoners of war into manipur and it, the story goes that these chinese prisoners of war taught the manipuris how to make bricks which i think is quite laughable yeah why do i say this uh, okay let's go back to the map i i say this for a certain precise reason let's go to the map once again and i'll show you why why i say this so you go to manipur the the major city in the valley region is imphal the capital of manipur you go into imphal you zoom in there is a place called the kangla fort which is essentially the 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 heart of manipur that's where manipur as a culture as a civilization is said to have emerged the kangla fort yeah there is a gate over here there is a moat around the place there is the kangla fort and then there are, there is the uh, there is a 
Govindaji temple inside and there is also an archaeological site where more archaeological exp- uh, work is being done i don't remember remember where it is somewhere around here there are excavations happening inside the kangla port i believe the asi would be involved um there are significant portions of the kangla fort that still remain underground that are not excavated they have not been researched at all some of the excavation work is still going on if you go there you will see that some of it is underground some of it is overground some of it is half exposed to the sun and so on when you go and look into it you will find bricks the kangla fort is around 2000 years old at least maybe older than that so there were bricks all right in the kangla fort i think if you are in manipur you can go and see it for yourself so this entire story of the chinese teaching manipuris how to make bricks are you kidding me i don't know how such stories come into the popular imagination but yeah it's it's a myth it's nonsense all right khusro mm. anushirwan says okay four questions let's take the first question i always i always take the first question what's your favorite samurai of all time my favorite samurai of all time there were lots of great samurai leaders uh, and so on if you want me to pick one i would pick the great miyamoto musashi musashi miyamoto musashi so miyamoto musashi was a great samurai great swordsman he was a was he wrote this great book the book of five rings i would recommend you all read this you know, people talk about uh, the art of war which was written by sun tzu well i would say you should read the book of five rings which is written by miyamoto musashi yeah the book is mainly about kenjutsu swordsmanship yeah how to wield a sword so miyamoto musashi was a, was a samurai who were the samurais they were the japanese warrior class you could call them the kshatriyas of japan yeah uh, very very strict principles very strict regimented life um, they ruled japan more or less for close to a thousand years yeah um, they had this way of life called bushido the way of the warrior yeah and miyamoto musashi was musashi was one of the great samurai and a great writer he, he wrote this book of five rings it's about swordsmanship it's about martial arts but it's also it's also about life it's also a book about life through swordsmanship and martial arts it's divided into like it says book of five rings it's about it's divided into five sections earth water fire wind and the void the void so i will not go into what the book is about what the details are but if you want me to name my favorite samurai i would say miyamoto musashi and i would recommend if you are so inclined do read his book the book of five rings great book knowledge seeker says what would be the mindset of the great leaders when they lost or it seemed like they would lose let me quote miyamoto musashi to win any battle you must fight as if you are already dead <laughs> which means you must commit fully to the cause and a leader a great leader would be fully committed to the cause whatever the cause is and in any leader's life in any person's life there will be times when you are close to failure and you may even fail we talk about chingis khan he never lost a single military campaign but he lost several battles and at times things would have looked bleak for him but he always found a way to to come out to to succeed at the end it doesn't matter if you lose a couple of battles here and there but you must win the military campaign you 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 participate in the world cup for cricket or football it's okay to lose a match or two but the overall game the goal has to be achieved 
so the mindset is you never give up first of all a great leader doesn't become a great leader just by not giving up there are other qualities that a, that a great leader must have if you have those qualities you never give up it's do or die you are fully committed and to win a battle you must fight as if you are already dead which means you have nothing to lose if i die if i lose it's fine i don't care but i'm going to do my best and leadership like i like i've said in the past is service you don't a leader is not a selfish person you don't fight for yourself you don't have ulterior motives you don't have uh, conflicts of interest you are fully committed to one cause that is the cause of serving your nation your people whatever it is whoever you are leading you cannot lead the whole world you have to have a specific limited constituency of people whom you lead yeah so that's how it is leadership is about service and to win any battle you must fight as if you are already dead and a leader who is completely committed will will say it's okay we're going to no matter what happens we're going to keep on going we're going to fight till the end and obviously that's how it goes so that's the mindset of great leaders lots of great leaders have come close to failure some have even failed but then emerged again and then won that's how it goes rodrajit sarkar says who are your <laughs> who are your favorite fictional detectives mine are feluda by satyajit rai roy and sherlock holmes by uh, arthur conan doyle uh yeah i have indeed read sherlock holmes i've seen some of the the series the old series and all that uh, great detective great great fictional detective maybe the greatest fictional detective of all time sherlock holmes you ask me i will give you strange names <laughs> uh i don't have one single favorite fictional detective the names that come to mind are for instance thompson and thompson <laughs> thompson and thompson the two detectives from the tintin uh comics yeah that's one i can think of uh, some names you may not know of david addison from moonlighting portrayed by bruce willis yeah remington steel portrayed by pierce brosnan uh inspector clouseau portrayed by peter sellers in the uh, pink panther series later on he was portrayed by steve martin which i did not enjoy at all yeah so these are some of my favorite fictional detectives yes um Giuseppe Di Fraia says human beings revert back to their primordial savage animalistic form like misogyny sexism violence killing tribalism debauchery and unspeakable horrors why do it why does it happen why why do humans revert to this well first of all we are indeed animals there is something that sets us aside from animals which is culture and civilization but sometimes culture and civilization breaks down in some some societies there is no for for whatever reason there is war or whatever there is no rule of law and order and you are forced to 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 fight with your fellow human beings for for mere survival for food and all that's when you are left with no choice and that should never happen but unfortunately in the world it happens so that's one reason yeah in in some societies the culture itself is like that i am not naming anybody please please okay let's not get into controversies i'm not naming any society in certain societies the culture is such that certain things are allowed yeah in the past it it may have been like that today also there may be some places possibly somewhere yeah so it's like that but as long as you have a set of moral and ethical uh values 
and you are consistent to those values and principles you're going to live like a civilized human being and not like an animal when those things break down you go back to being an animal yeah and of course some people are incapable of being an animal even if they don't even if they are living in the wild uh and some people are naturally predisposed to violence and all that so in every society you have some criminal elements and all that's how it is but overall is from a societal perspective when a society is under great stress when there is let's say foreign occupation that's where your culture uh is no longer something you can control and you know there are external cultural impositions on you and those that taint becomes part of your culture and if you that's one possibility and if you are a nation at war and there are no resources available because of warfare then you may be you may be forced to fight for very small things like just food or water and and, and support your family and the only way to do that is to fight your fellow human beings that is horrible that also happens yeah so um that's how it is and of course there is greed you know nations fight each other sometimes for territory look at chinese expansionism so on so typically this uh, reverting to animalistic behavior is because of uh, a breakdown of culture and civilization when those that set, set of values and morals and ethics goes away that's when some human beings can revert to such behavior which is unfortunate yes let's take one more question sharma is big says could you please interview the girl <laughs> could you please interview the girl that played jenny in rrr and at the end could you tell her that if she ever finds herself in melbourne melbourne australia i lakshya sharma would can show her around for free i'd highly appreciate this who's the girl who played that thing let's shall we google it yeah let's google who who's the girl that played the the role of jenny jenny this there was a jenny in forest gum wasn't there but this is a different jenny so let's go to this incognito tab let's go to imdb.com imdb.com boom oh and let's search for rrr rrr this movie and let's see who that lady is what is her name uh, i think this is the one yeah jennifer right jenny her name is olivia morris olivia morris she is from england i believe she's english uh, let's let's see if uh, one can trace her social media <laughs> something uh, she has instagram yeah let's see is there any email available <laughs> this is okay she she has a this photograph with this wonderful gentleman here uh all right that's an instagram she also has a twitter yes so okay her name is not jenny her name is olivia morris and so on so listen i don't have anything in common with this lady olivia morris i'm not sure if i shall interview her i um, I, i typically don't interview actors and actresses uh but you know what if if she's watching by any chance or if somebody who knows her is watching please let the lady know her name is olivia morris please please let her know that there is this fine young gentleman called lakshya sharma who will be happy if she ever finds herself in melbourne to show her around for free so uh please uh, if she's watching please please if if olivia you're watching please know that if somebody who knows her is watching please convey it to her if she's ever in melbourne she can meet mr lakshya sharma will be happy to show her around for free yes <laughs> all right uh, i let's take some a uh, live chat questions for a few seconds yes uh, sorry i what, what what is that what is that excuse me there's not stalking i'm doing some genuine research on 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 because of a request i'm not stalking anyone please <laughs> uh, all right all right uh, so what shall we see 
Someone is saying I'm simping. Excuse me, I don't simp. Uh, okay, you have any questions? You can ask me some questions. Uh, do you move your hand while reading to know the style of learning? So I'm reading and I'm moving my hand. I don't move my... Okay, some people, they put their finger on the text they are reading and they read line by line. I don't do that. I think I, I absorb entire paragraphs at once. I don't know how I, how I read it. I've never tried to analyze it. Um, I think I, I read paragraph by paragraph, not, not word by word. I read really, really fast. I think it's a kind of somewhat unusual the speed at, at which I read. Uh, but yeah. Um, what else? How's the book Children of Memory? I haven't started it yet. I book I buy more books than I can read, and I have read more books than I than I have bought. I have I the book Children of Memory is a sequel, I believe, to a previous book which I have read, and it's which is brilliant. And that's why I bought the book Children of Memory. And there's a book called Children of Ruin as, as well. The first one is a book about spiders and humans. The second one, I haven't read. The third one, I haven't read. But the first one is brilliant. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. Science fiction, of course. All right. Let's take some other questions. Uh, I'm always having out-of-body dreams. Why is this happening? I'm scared to sleep. Please help someone. I think you should see a psychologist or psychiatrist or something. You know, they can analyze dreams they will ask you questions they'll ask you about how you're feeling and how and 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 how do you feel about these out of body dreams what do you see in these out of body dreams do you go somewhere are you flying do you meet do you meet some people who are terrifying do you meet some supernatural beings how do you feel about that what is your reaction to that so you if you if it is really a problem for you i th i don't think i'm the right person to uh, person to ask you should actually see a psychiatrist and and work through the issues that may be uh, the root uh, the root cause behind these dreams. Uh, dreams always, I believe, have some connection th with real life. And they typically tell you something. And they indicate some, some something about the, the state of mind that you are currently in or whatever circumstances go you're going through. Sometimes some people have a recurring dream. It may recur every night or it may recur infrequently, like once a year or something. But when it comes back, you're like, oh, wow, this came back, that sort of thing. And some people uh, never have the same dream again. Some people always have a similar kind of dream and some people have things like out-of-body dreams and all that. So yeah, if it is a problem, if it is scaring you, if it is affecting your life, you need to see a professional, maybe a psychiatrist, and go through the entire process and they will help you um, address what this is really about. It's typically about some issues that you're facing in your actual life. Have you ever experienced sleep paralysis? I have not. Uh, sleep paralysis is when you sleep and uh, you become paralyzed and you're awake, but you can't move. And typically you feel some kind of supernatural presence in, in the room. Maybe some heavy weight on your chest, like some, some, some being is sitting on your chest and it's a very frightful experience. That's what I've heard. I have personally never experienced it. Um, some people experience it multiple times in their life. Uh, I'm not sure if everybody ex experiences experiences this sort of thing, but yeah, I personally haven't experienced it. But it is some it is a phenomenon that is known to uh, be reasonably common, and it's a phenomenon that's known to have existed mostly like throughout human history. Uh, 
there are even paintings of of this thing it's called a night terror or something you know paintings by i believe european artists about a night terror a person is sleeping and there's, there's some 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 demon or something sitting on their chest and that sort of thing so yeah i personally haven't experienced this okay <clears throat> Quickest practical way for India to reach 15 trillion dollar GDP. Focus on the economy, manufacturing, 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 and export, export, export. That's the quickest and practical way. It's easier said than done, but it can happen. Next 20 years. Give yourself 20 years to reach 15 trillion dollars. Why not? Um, uh, what will be the future of Canada, according to you? Why so many these eye rolls <laughs> uh, why not? what's the future of canada according to me recession or economic collapse see canada is a huge gigantic ginormous empty country mostly frozen it uh, the, the true owners the custodians the true owners of the land are the ones who are the most marginalized the ones who have been genocided the native americans that's a whole different thing today you have a fascist dictator running the country justin trudeau monsieur trudeau is running the country uh I don't think anyone likes him, but they keep electing him, which is kind of weird, which kind of raises some questions. Anyway, the future of Canada, the Canada is a U.S. vassal state, okay? And the future of Canada is intrinsically tied to the future of the U.S. Canada, of course, has no natural threats. It is, uh, it is uh, protected on two sides, just like the U.S., by the oceans, the Atlantic and, and the Pacific. Uh, what industries does Canada have... Uh, Lumber, logging, mining, and that sort of thing. What does Canada produce? I'm not sure what Canada produces. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure what the future of Canada is. Canada doesn't even have a cohesive, distinctive culture. Yeah. All we can say about the people of Canada, the Canadian culture is that it's nicer than the, than the Americans. If you make Americans nice people, they, they are Canadians. So Canadians are like nicer but poorer Americans. What future does Canada have? I'm not sure. Um, it all depends on the US. Canada doesn't have any, any real threat. The only threat, if, if there is any, is the US. But why would the US you know, invade Canada or whatever? What's the need to do that? To do that? The future of Canada, for my, from my perspective, is like I don't really consider Canada to be an important nation from any perspective, apart from the fact that it occupies a gigantic amount of territory, mostly empty, in North America. Yeah? Eventually, eventually, I don't know. I don't know. So I don't see I don't see Canada as an important country that really matters. Yeah, it is rich, all that. It has a vast amounts of natural resources. All that is there. These are some of the advantages. But it doesn't have its own culture. There is no such thing as a unifying culture or identity of Canada. It's all white settlers and settlers from other nations, other parts of the world. So I don't know what the future is. Maybe a hundred years down the line, there may not even be a Canada. You know, there could be Quebec and Alberta and, and uh, Newfoundland and uh, Saskatchewan, Saskatchewan, and all that. Who knows? Maybe you will have a resurgence of the Native American nations, which would be great. Yeah, but yeah, uh, it's an artificially cobbled-up nation, and such nations typically don't last too long. Yeah, from a Historical perspective. If you if you look at it century upon century, typically such nations come and go. Artificially constructed nations. So, you know, yeah, that's what I feel about it. Karthik says, I have experienced sleep paralysis once. It was terrifying. That's what I hear. That's what I hear. That, that is really terrifying. I am fortunate. I've never experienced it. But uh, uh, 
so i believe that the person who experiences sleep paralysis is typically conscious in the sense that they are awake and they are aware of the fact that they are they are they are paralyzed they are unable to move and eventually the the ability to move comes back after a few minutes or maybe half an hour or whatever i'm not sure what the time period is but even if it is a few minutes it's it 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 feels like forever i've read about this and it's uh, yeah it's really scary like you get this cold sweat and you're really frightened like there's something frightful in the room but you can't see it maybe i'm not sure if you can open your eyes but yeah that's how it is yeah so yeah i, I know it's it's quite terrifying it's a terrifying phenomenon uh roma bliss says i am from mauritius uh, salut 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 to our good friends in uh, il maurice okay who was werner von braun werner von braun was one of the greatest rocket scientists of all time he grew up in germany he uh participated in the nazi uh, war program the the development of the v1 and v2 ballistic the, the v1 and the v2 rockets one was a cruise missile the first ever cruise missile and the second one was the first ever ballistic missile after world war 2 ended he surrendered to the americans yeah and then he was transported to the us and he essentially set up the american space flight program yeah so the american space flight program the father of it is werner von braun he was the director of nasa he was initially a prisoner in the us yeah and uh, he was, has never been able to escape the nazi taint some people keep on insisting on calling him a nazi listen listen if you are born in germany at the time and the only way to become a scientist is by co- cooperating with your government um, i suppose that's what you have to do that's one perspective of looking at it i'm not justifying anything i'm just saying that's how it was perhaps for him and some people say that he did use slave labor jewish slave labor or whatever roma slave labor perhaps i don't know in as part of the of the uh, activities he was doing while he was uh, in germany so that's that's uh, a taint that has always stayed with him maybe it will always stay stay with him he died he, he was responsible for the us uh, space program he was the father he oversaw personally uh, america's moon landing program in the 1960s yeah the saturn 5 rocket was developed under his supervision and guidance yeah so maybe the greatest rocket scientist of all time yeah and it is german rocket technology that eventually made its way into the us like i'm saying and also into the ussr yeah uh, the r something rocket is something the soviets developed using german know-how and technology and scientists rocket scientists and that that ussr space flight program which was a, developed from the from the german program that eventually some of the technology was transferred to china and that's how the chinese program began so it all goes back to the germans and to werner von braun yeah so he was possibly the greatest rocket scientist of all time but yes he was part of nazi germany and that is something that will always stay with him sadly but a great 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 scientist all right i think we will stop uh, we will end this session here wonderful session thank you all for your questions i can see lots of questions coming in all over again but uh, i'm going to end it here yeah otherwise we'll go on forever i i know i can do it all night and you will stay on some of you will stay on, stay on at least yeah so all right uh, i'm going to end it here thank you so much for your questions participation wonderful um, i'm glad to uh, to have reached 150 and we'll keep on going so until next time take care thank you and i'll see you soon bye